Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. Joining Chelsea and me around the table today is Melissa Odin, a pro-life and adoption advocate. She joins us today to share more of her story and why she chose to be so vocal on issues surrounding abortion And Melissa, we are just so glad to welcome you to Capital Conversations. It's snowing here in D.C., and as I understand it, it's snowing in Kansas City as well. Yeah, hopefully it's done snowing, but we are snowed in. (laughs) Well, thank you so much again for joining us. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by the ERLC Internship Program. The ERLC is currently accepting applications for this summer's program in both of our offices in Nashville, Tennessee, and Washington, D.C. Our internship exists to prepare students and young professionals with a kingdom-focused worldview to engage the culture with the gospel of Christ. Hear now from some of our former interns as they answer the question, why should someone apply for an internship at the ERLC? If you're at all interested in politics or how faith intersects with the public square, the ERLC internship in D.C. is an incredible opportunity that I would highly recommend you uh, consider. It's not just the type of internship that you want to do. Only if you're interested in government can you be in this. But for Christians, this stuff that you know we were learning in this internship can be applicable in a huge variety of areas. And I would recommend anybody who's a Christian who's interested in politics to apply to this because it really is a good way to get practice in certain policy areas and to learn how to be a Christian in a space that's often not friendly to them. Getting to experience people who are fighting the good fight, but also are deeply spiritual and and deeply rooted in their faith is an experience that I will carry forward for a long time. You should apply because you will become a better person and a better professional. I think there is that dualistic spiritual and professional development that that you're not going to find really anywhere else. A great learning experience about what it looks like in practice to make a difference and to do it in a way that is gospel-minded and method as well. If you're looking for a great internship, especially in D.C. in that atmosphere, you should definitely check out the ERLC. Coming and working and interning for the ERLC builds so many relationships in our areas of interest that have been super helpful in learning what we want to do going forward, but also just learning how to live out your faith in everyday life. If you or someone you know in your church or on your campus is interested in our work, consider applying. For more information and to learn about each office and the various internship concentrations available, visit erlc.com internships. 
Melissa, I first learned about your story um, when you testified before the House Judiciary Committee um, several years ago. I was working on the Hill at the time, and my boss was on the Judiciary Committee, and we had the pleasure of hearing um, your powerful story and your powerful testimony. I think you're incredibly well-spoken, and I'm grateful for your courage and sharing your story so boldly. I'm sure it's not always easy, but the world needs to hear from you. Um, So we're just incredibly grateful that you um, are joining us. So adoption is a large part of your story, um, and you grew up knowing you were adopted. But when you were a teenager, you learned something a little bit more about your story. Can you share um, a little bit more of your upbringing and um, what you learned as a teenager? Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up knowing I was adopted. That was just the fabric of my family, my parents actually struggled with infertility for over 15 years. Mm. They had been foster parents and they adopted my older sister from another family in the midst of that infertility. And then they adopted me. And then, you know, because God, God orchestrates things the way he does, after 15 years of infertility, my little brother came along biologically. <laughs> I'm sure that was a fun surprise for all involved. <laughs> It really was like, you know, we have a lot of jokes about adoption in our family, as many people do. And uh, my brother would probably be the first one to tell you when we were growing up, we'd always say to him, you know, uh, they chose us. They just had you. Right. I know that's not an okay joke in certain places, but I feel like I can trust you guys with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So that's what I knew growing up, right? I was adopted. I was so deeply loved. I was chosen by my parents. And, um, and that really was the fabric of my family. But Mm. Chelsea, you know, as you said, I was actually 14 years old when the story about my survival of a failed abortion came to light. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of times people ask me, well, you know, didn't you ever really suspect there was something like this in your life? And, uh, you know, I can say no. How could you? Yeah, right. Nobody would ever guess. And, and, you know, back then, I didn't know that abortions could fail and children could live. And so that news was absolutely devastating. Hmm. So Melissa, I, I would guess it's safe to say that most of our most of our listeners and just most people in general have probably never heard the story of an abortion survivor or or let alone having met somebody who that's that's part of their story. So if we could, I'd I'd love to go back to to the beginning of your story. Uh, you were born in Iowa, is that correct? That's correct. Okay, and and tell us a little bit more about the situation regarding your birth. Yeah, it's really interesting because the more I live this life and live it in obedience, the more God unfolds the storyline. So what I know is that 41 years ago, I'm 41, it's okay, Um, 41 (laughs) years ago, sometimes people are like, whoa, Um, it was 41 years ago that my biological mother as a 19-year-old college student actually had a saline infusion abortion forced upon her by her own mother, my Mm. maternal grandmother. And I think those dynamics are really important to talk about because we hear it talked about as a choice and a right, but if people educate themselves about abortion, what they're going to find is that there is very little choice for most women when it comes to abortion. You know, the Elliott Institute actually reports that 64% of women identify feeling pressured 
Wow. Into their abortion decision. Mm. And and so my birth mother's circumstances are really not that unique in that respect. Um, what is unique is that my maternal grandmother was actually a prominent nurse in their community of, of Sioux City, Iowa. She worked very closely with the abortionist. And so that's how they literally forced this upon her against her will. They bypassed regulations, procedures at the hospital, you know, made people to believe that it was her choice. Um, when in fact, my birth mother had no intention of having that abortion. Hmm. Wow. And, and how, how far along uh, were you in development uh, when, when that happened? The abortionist had written on the medical records. He estimated my birth mother to be between 18 and 20 weeks pregnant with me. Okay. But the fact that I was able to live and I weighed right. almost three pounds makes it very clear that she was much further along. Yeah, and definitely. a neonatologist even remarked after I was delivered alive that he estimated me to be probably 31 weeks gestational age. Wow. Wow. Um, just as a as a side note here, my wife and I are expecting our first. Uh, she is at uh, just a little over thirty seven weeks right now. So mm-hmm. these conversations have uh, to all of us around the table in, in their own unique ways, mm-hmm. uh, really really personal. So so thirty one weeks, the saline abortion procedure uh, is is moving forward. And what happened next? What what happened in in the hospital where we were able to to talk to you today? Yeah, so that type of procedure that I survived should have poisoned and scalded me to death in the womb. Usually the procedure lasted about 72 hours. My medical records actually reflect that I endured that procedure over a five-day period. Um, They did not successfully induce my birth mother's labor until the fifth day. And of course, they believed that I would be expelled from the womb as a successful abortion, a deceased child, but I was accidentally Hmm. born alive. And, Hmm. you know, I wish I could tell you guys that when I was delivered alive, that they were somehow rejoicing and saw the miracle of my life. But that's not how this usually happens. Uh, I now know that when I was delivered alive, there was disagreement about whether any medical care would be provided to me. My, My adoptive parents had been told years ago, we laid her aside. We laid her aside, and ultimately, some nurses intervened to save my life. Mm. Uh, It's been taken even one step further, because about two years ago now, I was actually contacted by a nurse who had read my book um, that I put out in 2017 about my life, and she had read my book, and she said, you know, Melissa, I have been following you for years on social media, and I wondered if you were the baby that I remembered from St. Luke's Hospital. She said, after reading your book, I know that it's you. She was working in the neonatal intensive care unit that day. And she said, I'll never forget it. The door came flying open. This tall blonde nurse had you in her arms. And she shouted out, I'll, I'll clean up the language a little bit. You'll be able to figure it out. But she, she shouted out, that darn Dr. Kelberg messed up. Oh my wow. That wow. was my abortionist. Hmm. And she went on and she said, she just kept gasping for breath. She just Mm. kept gasping for breath. And so I couldn't just leave her there to die. Wow. It is just amazing. Just as you're you're sharing your story, how I just see the fingerprints of the Lord all over your story from that nurse to 
your adoptive parents to you now sharing um, your story. And it is just, I'm sitting here in tears. It really does touch my heart quite a lot. Um, Can you share, I, I can't even begin to imagine how you process that information. Can you share, I mean, what was that like as a 14 year old teenager? I mean, teenagers have it rough already, but to learn, <laughs> learn that about your story and about people that brought you into this world, um, how did you begin to process that, that information? I didn't process it well, I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest. You know, that was one of those things over the years that I I think I wanted to hide from, I mean, first I wanted to hide it from my parents and then I wanted to hide it from the world that, um, that I had suffered so much. I'm, I'm one of those people, I think that, um, never wants people to feel sorry for me. Right. Mm. I don't want anybody to ever pity me. I'm the one who takes care of other people. Right. That's just who I am. And so I tried to hide my, my pain and my suffering from other people. And, and even though, I put on that front for people, I was hurting myself. Mm. So, you know, developed an eating disorder, trying to control something in my life, you know, abused alcohol, trying to numb the range of emotions that I felt. Um, Didn't want to be this person, right? At the age of 14, I just wanted to be like everybody else. And what any 14 year old would want. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to be like everybody else. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was just this really um, traumatic existence for me. I mean, I think what I appreciate the most is that um, the very thing that caused me so much pain initially is the one thing that has brought me so much purpose and so much Mm. joy and is allowing me by the grace of God to hopefully um, impact this world. Mm. So Melissa, when did your parents adopt you? I went home to my parents less than three months after I survived that failed abortion. So they first met me. I was still lying in a NICU. You know, the doctors were very guarded about my life. Um, They initially thought I had a fatal heart defect, um, but it was simply the amount of distress that my body was under. Um, I suffered from seizures, respiratory, liver problems. Uh, There were mistakes made in my care. So the doctors thought I was going to be blind. You know, that part of my story I share because we hear those arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if these babies aren't aborted, who's going to adopt them? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, that's a really faulty argument. Um, and secondly, um, people just like my mom and dad mm-hmm. are going to mm-hmm. adopt people just like me. I love that. I love that. So you were actually able to make contact with your um, birth family. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, it. people are sometimes surprised by that, uh, that I went looking for them. But if people really get to know me, they realize it wasn't just for me to find answers, but it was also because I wanted them to be set free. You know, I didn't mm. know all of these dynamics surrounding the abortion years ago, but I I did know in my heart that their lives had to have been impacted mm-hmm. by that decision about my life. And so, yeah, started looking for them when I was about 19, started looking for my medical records at the same time, um, ultimately found them and my medical records after about 10 years of searching in 2007. Wow. That's quite the process. 
Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit of a a, <laughs> a perseverant person, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah, from I mean from the from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, it was it was clear uh, the the tenacity that God created you with uh, to to search. So so who all in your biological family have you made contact with? When I found my birth parents in 2007, I learned that I was living in the same city as my biological father. No oh my way! Goodness. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, I had moved there during my years of searching to finish my master's degree in social work, knew that that's where my birth mother's abortion had taken place. But, you know, we know people can travel great distances to have abortions. And so uh, I reached out to my birth father, unfortunately, never heard back from him. Mm-hmm. And he ended up passing away uh, in early 2008. And uh, I only learned that because I, I found his obituary online and really, you know, really grieved that, right? To search for him for so long, be in the same city. And then not um, be able to I, make contact. Yeah, yeah. I, I really questioned God. Mm-hmm. And God spoke very plainly to me in my grief. He said, be patient, Melissa, hmm. because my plan is much greater than the one you had in mind. And, you know, I got to see that plan unfold. When my birth father died, his family actually found my letter. Wow. And so my grandfather and my great aunt from my birth father's family have now been a part of our lives for about 11 years. Um, I did have some communication with my my maternal grandparents back in 2007, uh, but I didn't start having contact with my biological mother until 2013. Um, that's when one of her cousins actually contacted me and shared really the biggest secrets that it had existed about my survival. And that was that my grandmother was responsible for so many things and that my birth mother had spent over 30 years of her life believing that I had died hmm. that day through the abortion procedure. Little did she know. Hmm. It really is. It's it really is quite remarkable. So we after we connected initially through that cousin, we spent about three years, you know, communicating by email and mail and finally met face to face for the first time almost three years ago now. And, you know, I know a lot of people want to know what that was like. (laughs) And, you know, it's almost indescribable to me. Um, you know, I guess I could tell you it's like one of those moments that, you know, is God ordained Mm -hmm. and it's just so sacred that you are, um, able to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And so we met face to face about three years ago and now she's a huge part of my life. When we moved to Kansas city six years ago, what we didn't know is that my birth mother lives here. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) You gotta laugh about it, right? I mean, I can laugh about it now. Wow. My birth mother lives here and so does one of my half sisters. So my kids are growing up alongside my, my birth mother. They know her as their grandma, Ruth. They're raised with their cousins. You know, last night we were texting about the snowstorm and (laughs) school cancellations and only God, right? Only God could have done this. And I can imagine how healing that was for her to meet you and to know that Um, you were still alive and how powerfully you've been able to use your story and how the Lord has used your story to um, 
to touch the lives of so many, um, but also to advocate. So switching gears just a little bit, when did you decide to go public with your story and um, turn your story into advocacy? Yeah, it was about 2007. I mean, mm. I prayed some big prayers during those years of searching, right? And I'll never forget, like, in 2006, I was kind of at the end of myself, right, mm. of just trying to figure out if God was calling me forward to share the story and how was I going to do it? How would anybody ever believe this kind of story, right? Um, and and then God answered those prayers because you know, in one fell swoop in 2007, I obtained my medical records, find out who my biological parents were, and my medical records detail the abortion. Not many survivors have that. Hmm. Um, it's pretty rare. Um, and then, and God answered that prayer to give me that first opportunity to share my story. I first spoke on the Hill with Feminists for Life in 2007, and you know, I never really intended to live a life of public ministry. You know, I just kind of thought, oh, this is something I should do. Um, but I gave up my career as a social worker in about 2010 and jumped, you know, full in. And so now I, you know, do advocacy work. I work with survivors behind the scenes, helping them be supported. Um, I help pregnancy centers and other organizations raise funds. You know, this is this is now what I I do. And as ashamed as I was years ago of who I am, I am so grateful that God made me to be this very person. I love that. I love that. Well, like I said, I heard you testify a couple years ago and it really did um, touch me. And I know it, your story and your testimony has touched the lives of so many. So just to, again, lay the the foundation before we get into our current moment, what's been happening. Can you just share where human dignity comes from and kind of lay that groundwork for helping our listeners understand where does our human dignity actually come from? Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's why we have this mess in the world that we do, right? Because when we, when we base the dignity of, of human worth on on what we in the secular culture want to make it out to be. It's very subjective, right? From moment to moment and person to person. And I, I truly believe that that kind of, of subjective value makes everybody a target because anybody's vulnerable, right? The, the, it's, it varies from moment to moment and, you know, one bad experience and you could be the next target. And, and I think we need to, to embrace, what we know to be true, that that we are all created in the image of God, and God creates each and every one of us with intrinsic value. There's nothing we need to do to, to earn that. Um, it's not when we take our first breath. It's not when we finally, you know, have this deep thought, right? Whatever people want to make it out to be, we are all born with that intrinsic value from the moment of conception, right? We're created with that. And, um, and that's why every abortion is a, a threat to that dignity and value, right? Sometimes people go, oh, late-term abortion, yeah, that's wrong, but maybe earlier on in the pregnancy. No, abortion always ends that human life that, that has that value. And so we have to not be afraid to say that, right? Be ashamed of it. And, and science confirms what we know to be true. That's so good. So good. 
Melissa, I, you know, as as Chelsea said earlier, have uh, just spent most of most of this conversation uh, really in awe of not only the providence of God in your story, but also uh, the courage that you've displayed and the courage that that your parents uh, displayed when when they showed up to uh, to meet their baby girl in in the NICU. And you're exactly right that this. This kind of understanding, that understanding that that your parents displayed of where our human dignity comes from, their story, your family story, is such a beautiful testimony to that, that that there they are in the NICU with all these potential really, really uh, serious complications. Uh, and they said, no, we're going to adopt her uh, into our family. And, th- and then, you know, to, to fast forward uh, the decades and, and to see uh, how how you're using the the story that God uniquely wrote for you um, is is so encouraging. So I, I appreciate that. And we've been touching on a lot of different theological motivations here, but surely that that was a rocky road for you to even fully come to that understanding of the Lord's providence in in your particular story. Uh, again, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are are pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders, men and women who are just trying to. F- to be faithful to the ministry that God has has placed before them. So I was curious if you could just share a little bit about why you think being rooted in what God says about humanity is so important when dealing with these kinds of difficult issues and when ministering to people that are in these really difficult circumstances, whether it's the woman facing an unplanned pregnancy or pressure from her family about what to do with that pregnancy, or if it's to uh, survivors such as yourself or or people that are dealing with disabilities uh, from uh, an attempted abortion, why is being rooted in Scripture and in what the Lord says so important for this work? Well, not only is it truth, right, but it's also that very thing that anchors us, I truly believe, you know. I mean, every every single thing I encounter and I deal with, you know, and even when I hear you say, Jeff, you're so courageous, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm really not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm just the most, I'm seriously the most ordinary woman you will ever meet in your life. Um, but I have this unshakable faith. And this steadfast obedience to God. And I will tell you, um, that's where my strength comes from. That's where my courage comes from. Um, And I want people to experience that same thing. And that's the only thing that is going to greatly impact people's lives, to give them hope in the face of those difficult circumstances. It's It's the only thing that's going to bring them healing it is going to be the very thing that allows them to become the person that God has planned for them all along. That's great. So based on your incredible story, and, and I know you you continue to to dodge our our, our, our compliments and comments there, just just to say it's it's ordinary, <laughs> but but um but yeah, based on based on your story, can can you speak to the importance of legal? So, so now facing facing Washington D.C., the importance of legal protections for the vulnerable. What what is unique about the need to protect infants and the unborn? And this is where <laughs> the listeners get uncomfortable, right? Like, sure. uh, I think I, it's true, right? I think as the church, we get uncomfortable about having to get involved or have that conversation about the legislative side or the political side of things. Um, 
you know, we, we, I think can embrace the fact that God is the creator of life and, and how we serve him and in helping people in need. But yeah, this, this makes people uncomfortable, but I hope that people can hear my story and choose to, to be emboldened by that. You know, I, I want people to understand that right now we live in a culture and we have for, for many years now, unfortunately, that by and large does not embrace the dignity and value of every human life. You know, we know we live in a culture that is turned away from God's word. And so until we live in a society that embraces the intrinsic value of every human life, we need to have protections in place legislatively. And that's why what's happening across the nation is so important to pay attention to, whether it's New York, Virginia, New Mexico, Massachusetts, Mm. Uh, Rhode Island, Vermont, right? The list of states could go on and on. Um, all of these states are aggressively attacking the dignity and value of life by expanding abortion through the third trimester and by deleting those pieces in the code that would ensure that children like me are provided medical care. Um, and I think, you know, it's important that we identify that the more Democrats, and it is, by and large, it's Democrats right now. Unfortunately, it's become and continue to be partisan when it comes to life. But, you know, the more Democrats introduce this kind of legislation, expanding abortion through the third trimester, the greater the likelihood is going to be that children like me survive abortions. And so the more we really need the Infants Born Alive Protection Act, you know, people, I think, are a little bit confused by it. You know, I hear even members of Congress saying, well, this isn't necessary. We already have something like this. Well, I'm here to tell you, we don't really. Mm -hmm. You know, President Bush signed into law in 2002, the Born Alive Act, but it really had no teeth. You right. know, it, it was wasn't just a providing definition. any consequences. Right. Yeah. And so we need those consequences to exist, that if they provide, if they fail to provide children like me medical care, there needs to be a consequence for that because I want people to understand I'm not really an anomaly. You know, mm -hmm. the anomaly is that I'm alive to tell my story. Yeah. Right. Um, children like me still survive and they're not being provided medical care. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned there at the end, we as an organization are advocating for Congress to pass the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. If anybody's been listening to this podcast over the last couple of weeks, that's that's been a theme and it will continue to be until we see it become law. Specifically, though, this, this next Monday, uh, the United States Senate will vote on this bill, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. So if you were standing in the Capitol and were able to speak with the senators before they walk on the floor to cast a vote on this particular bill, what would you tell them? Well, I have a couple of things. <laughs> you know, first I would say this is a human rights issue. Mm -hmm. This is not an attack on Roe versus Wade. This is not some political game that's being played. These are human beings' lives that are at stake. Um, and I'm here to as testament to that. And I guess the other point that I would say is, you know, as survivors of abortion, we have had to fight for our lives in the womb. Hmm. We should not have to fight for our lives again after we're born alive. That is so, so powerful. One last question as we wrap up. Adoption is actually part of my story. My birth mom was actually 19 as well when she did have me. And my parents adopted six children 
So I grew up very much like you, knowing I was adopted and adoption being very normal in our household. So I'm very passionate about it. Our um, boss at the ERLC, the ERLC's president, Dr. Moore, is very passionate about adoption as well. He wrote a book called Adopted for Life and has two boys adopted from um, Russia. So we are big um, into into the child welfare arena as well. Could you just, um, as we wrap up this conversation, could you just talk about why um, adoption is so important in these conversations of abortion and and born alive abortion survivors? Yeah, I actually am contacted by people frequently who will say, how can I adopt one of these babies, right? Um, And I appreciate their passion. and I can understand that passion. And, you know, I like to remind people that that no matter who you are in that adoption triad, adoption certainly impacts everyone's life, right? Whether you're the biological parent who places, you're the adoptive parent, you're the adoptee, you know, there is grief involved in mm-hmm. that, um, but there is healing and joy. And I would love for us to create a culture where adoption is talked about in a positive manner on a regular basis. And there are services and support that exist for every member of that adoption triad, because I feel like that's part of what we're missing, right? And no matter what um, people believe about adoption, I always like to remind people that it is the option that everybody can live with. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody can live with that decision. It is the child who gets to live in the face of abortion. Those biological parents can live with that decision that they made. Um, And of course, those adoptive parents too. So it really is a life-giving option. Mm -hmm. Melissa, that's so good. Thank you again for for coming on Capital Conversations. And I want to point everybody to your book. You, You mentioned it earlier. It's a memoir titled, You Carried Me. A daughter's memoir. Where can people go uh, to one get that book and to uh, to stay in, in touch with you and learn more about your story and, and read your writing? Yeah, so people can find it on Amazon or um, you know that little blurb wherever books are sold. I think that's how that goes. <laughs> they can also find it on my website, um, which is Melissa Odin O H D E N dot com. That's wonderful. We will link to uh, both your website and the Amazon page for your memoir in our show notes. Melissa, thank you again for joining us here on Capital Conversations and for all you are doing uh, for speaking up for the voiceless, giving voice to the voiceless uh, so that our, our laws would protect the vulnerable. We, we appreciate partnering with you in this endeavor. Thank you. God bless. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delph, and Conrad Close, for getting this episode published online. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church. <laughs>